0: This is the fourth part in this series. We're calling it Relationship with Less. I'm going to do a little bit of reading from The Minimalist's new book. It's called Love People Use Things Because the Opposite Never Works. It's a book about the seven essential relationships in our life. Not just people. That's one of the relationships. But also we talk about our relationship with stuff, material possessions, right? Healing that relationship with stuff that is causing so much angst, distress, restlessness, overwhelm, discontent in our society, but also some other relationships in our lives, our values, our money. And today I want to talk to you a bit about our relationship with creativity, also our relationship with distractions, our relationship with technology. So, why don't we dive into that. If anyone has any questions, if you'd like to be brought onto the stage here, go ahead and raise your hand. I'll get to you as soon as I'm done reading. You'll be first in line. Feel free to raise your hand if you want to be part of this discussion. This is Relationship 6 from page 214. I got my first real job at 13, the summer before junior high and high school spinning cotton candy at Americana, a discount amusement park on the outskirts of Middletown, Ohio. But my first ever job was a decade earlier, in the mid-80s. We had just moved to American Village, a bland apartment complex composed of dozens of brown brick buildings separated by thin landing strips of brown grass 20 miles south of Dayton. Our one-bedroom unit was entirely beige. The carpet and walls and appliances, all shades of monotony. A couple of weeks before my fourth birthday, I asked, Ma- I, asked to buy- I asked to buy a G.I. Joe action figure at the local Hills department store. Mom explained we didn't have enough money to both pay our bills and purchase the plastic man I wanted. So we'd have to wait till Friday for the toy soldier. Being that I was only four and I didn't understand money or commerce or delayed gratification, I figured I could help. That afternoon, I marched down to our apartment's main office and told them I needed a job. After she realized it wasn't a joke, the woman behind the counter smiled and then whispered something to her co-worker before returning her benevolent eyes to me. "'Okay, if you pick up all the trash around our buildings, we'll give you a dollar a week,' she said. "'Two,' I said. "'Excuse me? I'll do it for two dollars a week.' Neither woman could contain her laughter. "'Was this little boy negotiating his salary?' Two dollars, huh? One for my mom to pay the bills, the other so I can buy toys. Bless your heart, she said, and then shook my hand to seal the deal. Every weekend that summer, I dropped off a small trash bag filled with dozens of glass bottles and food wrappers and scraps of paper, and every weekend I returned home with a dollar for my mom and a dollar for me. Let's ignore that I was grossly underpaid and that we were probably breaking several child labor laws, and let's focus instead on the wisdom I absorbed that summer. Well, I didn't learn about budgeting or inflation or sound financial principles, I picked up many valuable lessons that formed a foundation for my aspirations. I learned about the payoff from drudgery. I learned it's impossible to have the peaks without the valleys. I learned about earning an income by creating value. I learned about not sitting around and relying on others. Most important, I learned about the power of asking. You see, had I not been willing to ask for that first job, then not only would I have missed out on my first taste of earning income, but I would have missed out on the knowledge gained through the experience itself. It turns out that any creative endeavor, be it writing a book, opening a yoga studio or baking a cake, is ultimately just a series of questions. All creativity is birthed from continuous questioning and our creations merely answer those questions. Who would benefit from this? What makes my solution interesting or unique? Where is the greatest need for my perspective? Why hasn't this problem already been solved? How can I better serve others with my creativity? What's the thing I can't not do? All great art, as well as every great leader, attempts to answer these questions and many others. Creativity is most effective and powerful and heartfelt when it answers questions. Of course, Those answers take on different forms depending on the brand of creativity. Some creatives solve problems with films and books and broadcasts. Others, through business or volunteering or just listening. No matter how you use creativity to solve problems, questions will always be found at the core. And as we create and our creations peel back the layers of questions, Better questions emerge. Everything's creative. Minimalism won't necessarily help you be more creative, but, but removing life's excess often helps people uncover their creative side. For the longest time, I led two separate lives, professional JFM and personal JFM. There was corporate me, prim and proper, ostensibly flawless, And then there was creative me, totally flawed. The two mixed about as well as glass rubbing against concrete. So I kept them segregated. Corporate me didn't talk about his love for writing, and creative me loathed himself for hiding his creativity from the world. It was almost as though each was ashamed of the other. What I didn't realize, however, was that both were creative as i climbed the vocational ladder corporate me learned about leadership and business management and public speaking and countless other skills that would serve my future creations although it didn't seem like i was being creative at the time i was creating a more knowledgeable version of myself and i was helping people solve problems what's more creative than that when you think of a typical quote creative person You may imagine famous artists like Angus Martin or Michelangelo or writers like Mary Carr or F. Scott Fitzgerald, but I'd posit that most pursuits are at least somewhat creative. My brother, Jerome, for example, fabricates countertops at a factory in Cincinnati. He may not be a traditional artist, but he's certainly a creator. My wife, Rebecca, is a dietitian who works with people one-on-one to develop personal nutrition plans to improve their lives. She's not creating a physical good, but she's nevertheless a creator. My friend Podcast Sean, who is recording this right now for our Patreon, folks, my friend Podcast Sean edits the minimalist books, essays, and podcast episodes. While he's not the author of our work, he plays a pivotal role in the creative process, and thus, he's a creator too. You know, it's fascinating what we talk about. I'm going to pause on this for a second. It's fascinating what we think of, the boxes we create. We think of creatives as what, artists maybe, people who paint paintings, maybe someone who writes books. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's a filmmaker, or maybe it's just someone who builds things, uh, whether it's pottery or even my brother Jerome who is building these cabinets. We may not always think of that because it's not artistic per se. I disagree with that. I do think it is a type of art, but people don't view it as art. They, they view it from a more utilitarian lens, right? And so we think of certain things as creative, but what I try to get through in this chapter is that Fundamentally, we are all creators, although we've been deprogrammed, or maybe just programmed, for so long. We've been programmed for so long to believe that we are not creators or that we are, at our fundament, we are consumers. Consumers of goods and services. In fact, corporations, even the corporation that I worked for, that I talk about in this book, we referred to our customers as consumers. And that's fine. It's partially true. We all need to consume some stuff, right? I went to the grocery store today, and so I bought some stuff there. I guess, technically, I'm a consumer, right? But we consume so much. We're told so frequently that we are consumers that we let that creative muscle sort of atrophy. We've forgotten about it in ways, and it's no wonder we don't feel fulfilled. It's no wonder we fill this gaping void in our lives and we try to fill it with stuff or with pleasure seeking or we try to fill it with um, success, you know, sort of status symbols, different attributes, different accomplishments, achievements, trophies. And trophies manifest in a bunch of different ways as well. It could be a literal trophy that you get for winning a contest or it can be the President's Club Award at your at your corporation, or it could simply be the high score on a video game. It could be a complete DVD collection. That's a type of trophy. Look at me. Look how complete I am, right? Return to text here. By the way, if you have a question, feel free to raise your hand. I'm almost done with this section. I'd love to talk to you if you have any questions, any comments about this, or about anything else with respect to minimalism, simple living, etc. Return to the text. Bottom line, you're a creative, you're a creative if you create something that solves problems or adds value to others. It's no more complicated than that. This is important because creativity is an essential part of living. To create something worthwhile though, we mustn't simply talk about creating. We must create Unfortunately, a bevy of roadblocks get in the way. That's when minimalism steps into the picture to help us clear the obstacles from the path so we can create. Avoiding procrastination. I was an aspiring writer for many years. I didn't write much, but I aspired daily. Bricklayers, carpenters, and many other creatives understand They must put in the work, literally brick by brick, if they want to build anything of note. But for some bizarre reason, writing is one of the few professions in which people expect to learn via some vague paranormal process without doing the actual work. Perhaps it's because we writers possess an unrealistic affinity for perfection. And the sentences situated on the page are never as great as the perfect screeds in our heads. So we procrastinate. In my 20s, I was a champion of procrastination. I deployed every excuse I could get my hands on. Too busy, too tired, too early, too late, too distracted, and dozens of other twos. It was like I owned a Rolodex full of apologia's always ready to evade the drudgery of creating. Many of my excuses were valid. I really was busy. I really did have other things to do. But even the best excuse is still an excuse. Some writers take the the excuses even further by claiming quote, writer's block. That was a go-to for me. But it's a peculiar justification, isn't it? Think about it. I've never heard about a nurse who calls off work because of nurses block. No, nurses and doctors and retail workers simply show up even when they feel tired and uninspired because that's what's necessary. Now, one might contend that those aren't creative fields, but I'd argue otherwise. These professionals help people solve problems which is the heart of creativity. All creatives must show up if they want to create. You see, just like nurse's block or bricklayer's block, writer's block does not exist unless you force it into existence. Of course, professional writers and artists and creators, the ones who make a living from their craft, know there is only one effective remedy for procrastination. Sit in the chair. Those four words changed my creative life. The problem isn't a blockage. It's a willingness to sit down and do the work. I had to learn to show up every day, both literally and figuratively. I had to learn how to sit in the chair, distraction-free, each day until it was habitual. Some days produce gold, but most produce sediment. That doesn't matter, though. The only thing that matters is that I sit down each morning and create. We don't learn via osmosis. It takes work. The same is true with any creative pursuit. In my 20s, I wanted to create something of great import, but I only wanted the end result, and I did not want what was required to achieve it. So I procrastinated. It was the opposite of minimalism. Instead of simplifying and getting to the essence of creativity, I cluttered my days with diversions. My hands and mind stayed busy, but not creative. I distracted myself to avoid the work. Avoiding distractions. We can't talk about creativity without talking about distractions because our relationship with creativity is inversely proportional to our relationship with distractions. On the surface, we tend to think of minimalism as a form of decluttering, but perhaps we'd be better served if we thought of it as de-distractioning. Not only does our stuff get in the way of a more creative life, but once we get rid of the excess, We begin to notice just how much time we've been wasting, pacifying ourselves with distractions. And in the modern world, we can't talk about distractions without talking about our biggest weapon of mass distraction, technology. Hmm. Let's pause there to talk about distractions. I mean, I think they, they appear in all forms. If any of you want to be pulled onto the stage to have a discussion about this, raise your hand. would love to answer any questions you you might have. But let's talk about distractions here. You know, what's fascinating is we're good, really good, skilled, I should say, at distracting ourselves. And I think part of that is just the mind. It's... Either either pleasure-seeking or it's avoiding misery, which is fundamentally the same thing. The reason we're better now than ever before is we just have more tools at our disposal. We've removed all the friction. We have that 79th organ, the smartphone, in our pocket that allows us access to infinite distractions, infinite entertainment. The irony of that is that same device can be a device on which you create. Any of these things that we use to distract ourselves these days, quite often, they are tools also for creation. And that's why they're especially pernicious, right? Because we, we buy these things to justify, oh, I'll use this to create. I remember back in the corporate world, 2003, when I got my first BlackBerry smartphone. I was told it would save me one to two hours a day, up to two hours a day. Can you imagine how wonderful that is? We were, what do you even mean by save two hours a day? Because it actually did the opposite. It bled into my evenings, and then it bled into my mornings. And then, then a year, two years, three years, seven years later, it was not saving me two hours a day. It was accosting me every waking hour of my day. I'd wake up in the morning, the first thing I would do... Let me know if this resonates with you. The first thing I would do is check my phone, my Blackberry. Now, this is before all the entice, enticing apps that we have today. There was no Instagram. Twitter was at an infant stage and not as enticing as it is now. Facebook wasn't really a big part of my life. But it was still distracting because, hey, who emailed me in the middle of the night? I've got people I need to respond to and all of a sudden, everyone else's emergency had become my emergency. Just because it was urgent to someone else doesn't mean it's important to me though. And yet now I was just spending all day sort of putting out everyone else's fires, right? And that's been amplified significantly with all of the new distractions. The app we're on right now, Clubhouse, can certainly be a distraction, right? Or we can use it like this. Our tools are only as good as the end user, right? The same has been true for many years. There's an analogy in the book about chainsaws and paint cans. You know, you can use a chainsaw to chop down a tree that's getting ready to fall on your neighbor's house. You can save the day with it, right? Or you can use that same chainsaw to chop up your neighbor into tiny little pieces, But aren't we kind of doing that to ourselves right now? We're chopping ourselves up into these really tiny pieces. We're chopping our time and our attention into one-minute chunks. Hell, one minute seems like an eternity now, right? Fifteen-second chunks. Ten-second chunks. The irony of this is it's taking us out of the moment in ways that almost ape the form of putting us in the moment. So, we've got some questions here. A few folks raising their hands. Feel free to raise yours. I'll get to you. Let's talk to Lisa first.
1: Hi, Joshua. How are you? And um, I guess Ryan as well. And Paul Kashan, thanks so much for, for doing your reading from your new book. It's really, really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I just, of course, a lot of what you're saying resonates with me and, um, and has resonated in the past. Um, I guess my question is. Um, Distraction. So I, and, um, in the form of being distracted by your stuff, your clutter, your physical stuff, your mental, your emotional, um, I guess, what would you say for someone who's just kind of had an epiphany, <laughs> mm. I, e. um, as like today it's crazy. Um today it was just like I have so much stuff, you know, stuff, baggage, whatever. Um and yeah, I need to get rid of it. I need to clear it out. But I have such a freaking, excuse my <laughs> excuse me, attachment to these things and it's crazy because in my mind I know it needs to go. Yes. But I cannot I cannot part with some of this stuff. It is insanity. I know it is insanity, and I have listened to your YouTube's and podcasts, and you know, podcasts between you and Ryan, and um, you and other people. And I'm so on board. I so get it. You know, I've tried the decluttering party, but I'm yeah. just—I don't know. I'm like sick in the head. <laughs> no, <laughs> I get I it. I get. I, get uh, it. I know it is better. I know it is better on the other side, but that I just. Yeah. I just don't know how to move forward. So uh, any any words of wisdom?
0: <laughs> I've got some insights for you, some observations perhaps. Lisa, thank you so much for your question. I, I really appreciate it. Here's here's where we go from here. So Lisa brings up such a important point because a lot of people know that they want to simplify their lives. And they even know the how-to side of things, right? As she said, you know, I've already tried some of the the decluttering, or a packing party, or maybe I tried the minimalism game, and all of these things are really helpful. The how-to's are helpful in a very mechanical sense, but they're helpful only if you truly understand the why, and you used a few times, you said, you know, I know in my mind what I need to do. That's actually the problem, knowing it in your mind but not feeling it yet in your viscera. That's where true understanding happens. It happens at the emotional level. You know it in your head, but you have to know it in your heart. Fortunately, we have some questions at the end of each chapter of the, this new book. I'll, I'll read some of these questions to you because these questions are highly individual and the answers are gonna be different. But if you are able to answer these questions in a thoughtful way with a, a, an honest pause, you think about it, you go back to these. These questions will obviously lead to more questions as well. By the way, I hope to see you on the road this year, at least, that we're doing a, a big tour, 20 different cities. It starts in a few weeks. We're starting in Texas, and we're going to be all over the place. Um, the Mountain States will be over in uh, Phoenix, and we'll be in uh, Salt Lake City, Denver, be three cities in Texas. We'll be in the southeast as well. We'll be over in Nashville and, and Atlanta and Orlando and I think 11 other cities on top of that. 20 cities overall. It's called the Love People Use Things Tour. We'd love to see you all there. We'll be all over the place US, Canada, East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, the mountains, etc. Hope to see all of you there. TheMinimalists.com slash tour if you all are interested. But Lisa, here's some questions for you questions about creativity, but also these are really questions about distractions. How is procrastination affecting your life? Well, I think you, you answered that already, but, and it sounds like you're feeling it as well. You feel overwhelmed. Well, that's, that's what procrastination is doing to you. It's also what attachment is doing to you. Now, I know we often talk about how there are, or we think rather, well aren't there like good attachments or or healthy attachments right um, well let's let's just phrase that a different way right instead of um you know because some people are like what about my attachments to my family and friends and community etc aren't those appropriate attachments isn't that different from stuff and okay yeah, it is different for sure but just replace the word attachment with clinging so whether it's a possession or it's something else in your life, status, achievement, a job title, even people. Clinging is not healthy, right? And so when we realize we can enjoy the stuff without clinging to it, we have that understanding at a heart level. Ooh, that's powerful. Here's another question for you. How are distractions getting in the way? Man, now, this could be getting in the way of your creativity. This could be getting in the way of you know, I think the, the most pronounced example of, of this is if you watch an episode of Hoarders, the stuff is literally getting in the way. Like they, you, they have to clear paths in order to walk to the bathroom. Or maybe some rooms are completely inaccessible, right? Well, that is an exaggeration of where we are right now. We don't have to wait, though, until the stuff is literally blocking the guest bedroom to realize, oh, this is a serious problem. We're all hoarders to some extent. There are five stages of hoarding. We did a podcast episode recently about this. You can check it out. Just go find the episode. I think it's just called Hoarders or Hoarding, one of the two. It's relatively recent. There's five stages of hoarding, almost all of us, with a few exceptions, but nearly everyone. I certainly was at least a stage two hoarder. In some cases, Ryan and I may have even been cusping on on stage three. Maybe we were like stage 2.5 hoarders. And so there was a problem there as well. The problem isn't the stuff. If the stuff was amplifying your life, enhancing your life, I'm not going to tell you to get rid of it. You're not going to tell you to get rid of it. If it was making you more joyous, if it was serving a purpose in your life, you wouldn't be on here asking the question. But the reason you feel as though you want to let go is you have recognized that attachment is not attachment, it's clinging. And that clinging is a sign that, oh, the more I cling, the harder it is to let go, right? But letting go, of course, is what? Letting go is not something you do. Letting go is something you stop doing. You know? You stop clinging to the material possessions. You stop clinging to toxic relationships. That's the letting go. If I'm holding on to something, if I pick up a giant boulder and it's weighing me down, I don't have to do anything to let it go. I just have to stop holding on to it. So letting go is not something you do. It's something you stop doing. You stop posturing as though the stuff makes you, you. Because if you let go of the thing, but not that attachment to the thing, you'll still get dragged. Here's another question for you. What would you like to focus on more and why? My guess is not the stuff. It's not decluttering either. Decluttering isn't going to make you feel good. It's going to create the space so you can focus on what you actually want to focus on. At least I really appreciate your question. If anyone else has something, we had a few other people raising their hands, but they've abandoned the stage. Or maybe we could just wrap it up now. Or maybe I'll find one other thing to, to share here from the book. Next week, we're going to talk about people, by the way. We're not talking about them behind their back. We're talking about our relationship with people, the final installment of our relationship with Les. I see Tina. Hey, Tina. How's it going? How can I help?
2: You know, one of the things that I was thinking about, I have never lost a person uh, in my life until recently when my dad passed away in May. But mm. what, I think, what I think is fascinating is just so many connections that I'm able to make through my grief journey with everything that you're saying in your book and things that you talk about it's just fascinating to be able to make so many connections so uh, that's just what i wanted to say the the concept of letting go you know the process of watching a person pass away physically you have to let go of just a tremendous amount of things you know you you would they're not things but i mean you would like to stop what you're seeing happening you would like to continue to think that the person's going to get better or
1: all sorts mm. of things
2: yeah. Then you have to let go. I mean, it's just everything you're saying. I'm sitting here going, oh, my gosh, you know, it really connects. And and it tells me also that this actually applies to every area of your life. So I've still got lots and lots and lots of things to learn through your book and what you say out loud. um, Because it isn't just people trying to clear out their houses. This is really about people trying to clear out their the way they think and the way they live. And and a lot of the grief counseling, I've had a little bit of it in the last couple of months. They're talking about the exact same thing you're talking about. It's just capsulated, and they're calling it grief counseling. But really, it's a matter of trying to not distract yourself out of actually feeling what you need to feel and being able to focus on what's most important, which is working for your emotions. So anyway, I just... I just think it's fascinating and I, I appreciate how you have framed so many pertinent lessons that go way beyond just trying to clear out your garage or something it's, it's wonderful
0: tina thank you so much i appreciate the comment a few you stirred up a few sort of images in me that i'd like to discuss bri- briefly one is about i think you're so spot on what we all, what we often try to do is we want to fix Things, meaning to put it in a fixed, put things in a fixed state. Oh my God, my you know, uh, my someone is dying. I want to keep this relationship forever. Or it doesn't even have to be death. We, we experience death all the time. We have death of relationships. We have, uh, in fact, life is most alive when we die to the past. And that's when we when we aren't living in the rear view, or we aren't living somewhere on the horizon of the distant future. If you go back and think about all the times when you were most alive, it can be described only with cliches. Living in the moment, right? Being on the mountain. Whatever it is, flow state. Uh, We call it mindfulness, or a state of no mind. All these things mean the same thing. In fact, the word eternal, comes to mind. Sometimes we use that word eternal, especially in religions, they use that word sometimes to describe afterlife, you know, what happens after we, we die. But eternal just means without time. And so, whenever something's going really well in the moment, a creative endeavor, the, when I'm writing sometimes, it's just, it's going so well that it is eternal. It is without time. You look up and, oh my God, I can't believe... It's already 5 p.m. How, how did I write for this long? Oh, it's because I, you were experiencing the, the everlasting now. And yet we try to fix things, pin them down. What happens when you pin down a butterfly, though? Of course, it, it ruins the beauty of the butterfly. It kills it. We try to pin down the moment. We kill the moment as well. We spend our days striving to remedy our problems. We, uh, we scramble to fix our relationships, our anxiety, our discontent, our dissatisfaction. When we encounter money problems, what do we do? We fix them with budgeting tools. When we have a career problem, what do we do? We fix it by by switching out our corporate overlord. Here, I'm not, I'm not happy working for... Um, Coca-Cola, I'm going to go work for Pepsi now. Okay, great. Is that really fixing it? When we experience health problems, I wrote about some very significant health problems that I experienced in 2018, 2019, and still experience the residual effects of today. But when we experience those health problems, what do we often do? We fix them. Not by getting to the root, but by erasing the symptoms with painkillers. Right? These are remedies, and they don't actually fix anything. Well, why is that? I think fundamentally because there is no fix. I think you cannot fix anything. It's a terrible metaphor, the fix, right? We're not machines. Yeah, you can fix mechanical things. If my car the transmission goes out, I could fix that, right? But even then, well,, yeah, there's a newfound permanence in a way. But things will still change, right? Because as soon as something is fixed, the world will change. And it will become unfixed eventually. On a long enough timeline, my transmission will go out again. And that will expose the truth. It was never fixed in the first place. So, real change is intrinsic. External factors are all sort of incidental. If we have a problem, it is useless to try to fix it. We must truly understand the problem if we seek to eliminate it. In medicine, it's sort of the palliative care versus a cure, right? And the only way we cure something is if we get to the root of the problem. We don't cure it with band-aids. I, like the, I prefer the, the metaphor of healing rather than fixing because healing often involves what? Not doing something. Thinking about Ryan a couple of years ago, he broke his back by vertebrae while skiing. In order to heal that, he literally had to stop doing things. But we're so caught up in doing, very rarely do we step back and say, huh, maybe the thing that will heal me is if I stop doing what I'm doing, at least for a while. Susan, it's good to see you. How can I help?
2: Josh, how are you doing? Outstanding. Good. Yes, Mr. Outstanding. Mm-hmm. The I uh, So I've done the cross-country move, and I just want to warn everyone, uh, get rid of your shit. You don't want to see it on the other side.
0: <laughs> Should have gotten
2: rid of more, because I could be spending a beautiful day outside, swimming in my pool, and I'm tearing through hundreds of boxes. <laughs> and, and I knew better. Are. I knew better. So just proactively you think you get rid of a lot you really didn't and when i started to see just how much i had i was like this shouldn't be happening i should have the dumpster fire right now mm. and yeah yes.
0: <laughs> susan it, that's great thank you for the uh, the lesson uh, sometimes it we it requires us learning it through immersion only because i could have told you that a week ago two weeks ago three weeks ago And it would not be as powerful as right now. Now you actually, this is what I was talking about earlier. You feel it in your viscera. You, now you understand it. You knew it before. But knowing is not the same thing as understanding. Now you understand the weight of the things. Material things for sure but all the other things that that causes. You've heard me say before that minimalism is the thing that gets us past the things, so we can make room for life's most important things, which actually aren't things at all. Now, that's not an indictment on things. I have some things. In fact, I'm sitting in this new studio. I can't wait to unveil it to y'all real soon. We just got this new artwork hanged. You can see a little sneak preview on my personal Instagram account right now of this new artwork. So I have some things, some beautiful things. But I don't have many things. And you know what? That means the things I do have, I actually get far more value from those things. And they stir up other things that it's already in within me. The sense of beauty here in our new studio space is overwhelming. It's astonishing and we've has this great artist named Beulah who has made these gorgeous paintings, and, and Tim from Wove Arts who, who situated all of the paintings. It looks like an art museum in, in the studio now. And we have regular things that we use for utility. I'm sitting in a chair right now, I'm talking to you on a phone, I'm drinking water in a beautiful glass, I'm reading to you from a book, I uh, have a microphone. Over there on the other side of the room for podcasting, for The Minimalist Podcast. Oh, we have a couch in here as well. These are all things that add value to my life and and the lives of other people that we work with. And those things are great. I can live without them though. I have no attachment to any of those things. I could walk away from them in 30 seconds flat. It's one of my personal boundaries. Being willing to walk away from anything in 30 seconds flat. Well, why? Because there's an incredible kind of freedom in that. And I value freedom. It's not that you should value freedom, but I value freedom over things like pleasure. I value freedom over things like thrills or fun, even. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but I've identified what I value. I value peace and serenity and tranquility. And so the objects in my life, I want them to augment that peace and serenity and tranquility I get the other stuff out of the way because otherwise it just drags me in the in another direction a direction in which I do not want to be dragged what a beautiful session today y'all thank you so much for your time I hope to see you on the road this fall this winter, the Love People Use Things Tour coming to a city near you 20 different cities theminimalists.com Love People Use Things